Hello and welcome to the FT Advisor podcast. Each week we are joined by guests from the financial services world. I'm Ema Jackson-Obot and I'm the Deputy Features Editor at FT Advisor. And today I will be discussing the energy crisis or dilemma and the journey towards energy independence with Felix Odi, Portfolio Manager Global Resource Equities at Schroders and Elena Kosova, Head of Investment Research at AJ Bell. Thank you both for joining us today. Hi Elena, hi Felix. There has been an accelerated push to transition to cleaner energy, but governments appear to be falling back to fossil fuels amid Russia's threats to turn off the gas tap. Is nuclear energy poised for a comeback? How has our understanding of energy security also changed? And what is the impact of rising energy prices on sustainability and the shift to cleaner energy? Felix, maybe we can start with you. How are the energy markets likely to evolve over the short to medium long term? And I mean, is it harder to make this forecast now when events in the world just seem to be moving at such a fast pace? Well, I think as you highlighted in the short term and and probably for the next year, really the focus of governments, especially in Europe, is on energy security. And what that looks like is is really assuring that there's enough regasification capacity uh, in Europe and being built out. uh, And also that ultimately Europe can secure the LNG, the liquid natural gas cargoes uh, that they need to fill that gap that's been left by Russia. So I think the focus has been there, but interestingly, even as we see governments having to resort back to things like coal or even fuel oil um, to to generate power, what we're also seeing uh, longer term, uh, even today actually, uh, we've, we've seen large utilities accelerating their pledge to leave coal. So I think that governments still recognise that long term, they've still got these carbon budgets that need to be met. And if in the short term, that means you're using more carbon because of the focus on energy security, actually, that just means that the mid term, there's going to be even more emphasis on gas and renewables. And I think that to your your second part of the question, is it much harder to forecast? I think in the short term, it has been, you know, there's been a lot of volatility, you've had markets being led by binary outcomes, decisions by Russia. But actually, the fundamental analysis of commodity markets still stands. And that tells us that with the inflation that we've seen across the services going into things like conventional oil, conventional gas, we think that actually long term, you're going to need an oil price of of about $80 and above to incentivize the new supply that we need. And likewise, we're going to see uh, gas prices actually equilibrate at a higher level as well. So long term, we still hold this view that the prices are going to be dictated by that marginal cost. But in the midterm, we're really seeing this kind of bidding war happen between Europe and Asia as Europe needs to suddenly redirect the LNG cargoes to Europe to fill that gap. And Elena, what do you um, say to that? Do you agree with what Felix has said? Well, yeah, so good morning, everyone. So, you know, I think it's it's a really you know, great topic to be talking about. You know, we are, you know, entering <laughs> this year, you know, with huge um, uncertainty in geopolitics. So, you know, we've come from a sort of reasonably, you know, sort of stable backdrop over the last you know, couple of decades to having, you know, a, a crisis, a health crisis, you know, to having to emerge from that crisis. You know, it requires a whole load of manpower and, you know, like a rebalancing, you know, know, in supply chains, you know, people's health and safety is at the forefront, you know, the governments have so many conflicting 
signals and um you know but you know ultimately as, as i think we are all agreeing um in that energy security is something that's you know is absolutely at the forefront of the government's agenda but i think you know there are some real shorter term challenges you know if you think of it we you know essentially we see things breaking in front of our eyes so we've got you know inflationary shock we've got cost of living crisis you know we've got liquidity crisis we've just you know just about managed to just about make it from what you know seems to have been a sort of like a mini financial crisis last week so i think you know the government has got so many so many um things on their plate right now but i think you know it, it is absolutely clear that you know given the importance of energy security given you know this is a very long term theme and you know wanting to kind of decarbonize you know the governments are you know, unwilling to kind of sacrifice in their um climate goals and you know we kind of need to have a um, viable plan in place to be able to get there so i do think that shorter term you know we talk about you know use of coal because you know people need to continue to put their lights on businesses need to continue to be able to run and ultimately you know there is you know vast swathes of population which need to have food and water and you know kind of basic access to to you know energy but actually longer term i think you know government you know will ultimately pull through and you know put in place you know what has been you know considerable amount of resource that has been required over the last couple of decades and i think you know we will only see acceleration in that capital um, requirement and capital allocation from governments and you know indeed actually if you look but, you know what is you know uh, inflation reduction act in the us it took a lot of people by surprise it's been in a brewing for quite some time and you know there's been a fair amount of you know um, negativity around it and people didn't want to kind of get it through but ultimately you know you look at you know, climate change, you just really can't deny it. So you look at floods in India, you know, you look at um, velocity of hurricanes in America, you look at, you know, some of the really um, scorching temperatures we're witnessing in Europe. And actually you think, well, there is no more margin. So you, you really kind of continue to structurally push ahead with that agenda. And, you know, green energy is really at the forefront of, of all of this. And I think on that point, um, I mean, you mentioned the kind of capital allocation. I think what's interesting is we're already seeing the market react to the energy crisis, to the inflation in the system. We're seeing higher PPAs, higher pricing agreements for renewable developers. And actually all of that means that you naturally get this supply coming through in response to the energy crisis. I think one of the things that has become really apparent in this is that one of the main bottlenecks that we've actually seen in the system has been from regulation. And one of the things that governments really can do and, and this applies to the UK, but actually maybe even more so in places like Germany, Spain, France, where there's a real issue of being able to connect renewable projects to the grid. So you have this kind of backlog, you have projects that are ready to go, um, but they're not being sanctioned because they can't get to the grid or because regulation is stopping them from being built. So I think governments are realising that maybe they've been holding themselves back. You know, again, going back to my original point on some of the regasification projects, these used to take three years. And in an emergency, kind of, you know, similarly to how we saw in COVID, what can happen with vaccines when there's the incentive there, we're seeing some of these projects being done in nine months. So actually, you're, you're really seeing a much faster response. The crisis is being taken seriously and you are getting the market response as well. But the point is that, you know, when we look at the energy market specifically, and, and Elena mentioned a lot of the other crises that are being faced, we don't see new liquid natural gas supply really coming through until 2025. So this is something that is going to be around for a while. We're seeing the market react, but the point is there's pain in that transition at the moment. Um, but ultimately, all of this just encourages the argument for more renewable build out because we now see that the economic argument there has never been stronger.
on that point you were talking about regulation and government i mean i is it my understanding the government has put the energy bill on hold i mean is it the right time or are they just trying to rework it is it the right time to put such a thing on hold then i think when we're talking about the energy bill um it's quite an interesting distinction i think when boris johnson put forward his energy bill a lot of the focus was more on that kind of mid to long term so it was focused on things like heat pumps on green and blue hydrogen on carbon capture and storage it, none of that has gone away we we still need that and actually if i look at the areas where government intervention and, and again to elena's point capital allocation is most required those are probably the areas because they're still industries that are in their nascency and to get to scale and to get to, to economics they are going to need some of that help what we've seen and again this goes back to the point we made at the beginning which is the focus now is on energy security and what i worry about is that governments do lose track of the fact that you still have to meet those mid to long-term guidances a uh, guidance on on carbon but also on on energy security in the mid to long term so i i think it's fair to say that the new government policy is much more trying to kind of find ways to fill the near-term gap but we can't lose you know as i said actually the market is already dealing with that and i think that to try and intervene too much in that could actually end up hurting more than uh, helping um so i just i just hope that the regulation hasn't thrown out you know the, the the important parts like green hydrogen and blue hydrogen which are really going to help the economy decarbonize the harder to reach parts of industry like cement like fertilizers like steel and likewise with heat pumps which are ultimately decarbonizing the home and those things are much harder to do from the free market perspective so uh, at the moment i i think that it's fine to focus on the near term, but we, we can't lose sight of the mid to long term as well. Elena, did you want to add to that at all? Yeah, so I think, you know, it's kind of really important, you know, to draw that distinction that it's not been abandoned, but it's really been put on hold. And I think that kind of feeds back to these, you know, multiple crises that the government is facing right now. And, you know, they've got finite resources. They have to kind of allocate capital. You know, they are also capital allocators. And I think time is of essence here. So, you know, as we've seen, the government have, you know, has taken numerous decisions last week, you know, good or bad, you know, some decisions are being reversed. But, you know, nonetheless, I think, you know, it's really vivid that I think inflation is is really here. I think it's a lot more structural, you know, than kind of central banks and governments have expected it to be. And I think in some ways, a lot of green initiatives, you know, are quite resource hungry. So if you want, you know, to Felix's point, you know, if you want to build out a whole load of new infrastructure, the chances are you probably need a lot of materials, you know, all of this stuff, you know, is real art. Assets. And, you know, we all know that's probably, you know, one area of the market that's not collapsed in a heap it has been resources, you know, those real assets, you know, they, they cost a lot of money. So, you know, I think the government is certainly, you know, having those long term objectives, you know, absolutely um, in mind, but I think it's kind of managing shorter term. And, you know, the, the, the second point around, you know, kind of, you know, wanting to nationalize, you know, certain companies and kind of run it, you know, for the benefit of the people. But I think, you know, the heritage in this country is that there's, you know, a lot of the industry is obviously private, you know, it's sort of reliant on private capital. And, you know, we as investors, you know, obviously, um, you know, trust in that system, in that it's efficient, it's got, you know, the right IP, is reasonably well funded. But I also think that, you know, perhaps, you know, the government's skepticism of wanting to take things into their own hands, you know, if you look at, you know, let's just take an oil sector, for example, you know, lots of these businesses, you know, as, you know, as, as a fund picker. So, you know, I look at my active fund management community and a lot of them, they have been shying away from investing in the likes of BP and Shell. 
And, you know, historically, it's been an absolutely right thing to do because, you know, a lot of these businesses that, you know, essentially capital destructors, you know, they allocate money to projects which don't, you know, make sense. So there's been massive capital misallocation that feeds into very volatile bottom line, you know, cash is not particularly consistent. So it's not really attractive. But I think, you know, given we've witnessed this massive transition, you know, towards integrating ESG, and I think, you know, there's no denying that, you know, there is no fund that exists these days, which, you know, doesn't think at least about, you know, this sort of uh, incorporating ESG concerns into their investments, different shades of it, of course. But, um, you know, it is something that a lot of people, a lot of investors, a lot of government, you know, government officials, regulators, central banks, they've got it firmly, you know, in their side. And I think a lot of these companies, such as oil businesses, being starved of capital, changes behavior big time so actually you know from being you know utterly uninvestable very inefficient you know wasting resources frankly they've become cash cows and you know very very disciplined in selecting projects and you know paying attention to margins you know rejecting certain projects if they don't make sense that is sort of quite some way that we've come and I think, you know, there's certainly, you know, some parts of the market, you know, let's just say oil sector is getting better. They're allocating more capital towards renewables, kind of pivoting away, you know, longer term from polluting fossil fuel businesses. But if you take water companies, for example, you know, there's a lot to be desired. So actually, you know, sewage is being dumped, you know, untreated into rivers and lakes and things, as we all, I'm sure, read in daily paper. Um, you know, so instances like that, I think there's quite a lot, you know, that we can improve. And so, you know, I kind of feel that you need a sort of like a combined solution where, you know, the government's sets up the regulation, creates the framework such that companies are able to, you know, have the right funding, but yet you place certain constraints and ensure that capital investment, you know, goes back into the industry so such that you essentially, you know, make it more efficient, make, you know, try and eliminate some of the really poor and bad practices. And then that way, it seems that solution is a little bit more balanced, you know, sort of you know, kind of uniformly across all the stakeholders that are involved. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with the points being made there. And I think that actually, again, maybe one of the things that we haven't spoken about in the short term, and, and when we talk about energy security, it's probably important we say exactly what we mean. And in some cases, this has also meant that governments have been pushing for kind of near term fast supply from things like fracking or, uh, or fast tracking some of the projects in the North Sea. Again, this goes back to my earlier point that if you are doing that in order to fill the near term energy security, there's going to be a carbon cost to that down the line. And again, if, if you, it means that the things like carbon capture and storage become even more important. But actually, that's an area where the UK could take a really leading role because of the geology of the North Sea, because of the history of conventional oil and gas production, and actually the very concentrated uh, centres of industry around places like the Humber in, in Yorkshire. Actually, that means that we could take a very um, strong position on that. And again, it goes back to Elena's point as well about these oil and gas majors becoming disciplined by necessity because capital availability isn't there, but also having the free cash to reallocate into renewable development, into carbon capture, into uh, EV charging, biofuels, really. And, and, and I think, you know, not, not to blend questions too much, but again, to your earlier question about what this looks like in the long run, the energy system is becoming so much more complicated. And in a world where that energy market is more complex, an integrated player is likely to have an advantage because whereas before renewable players could just get non-recourse debt, you'd set the price you were going to receive for the power you were producing. They were very simple projects. Whereas as renewables become a larger portion of, of the grid, actually all of that gets chucked out. And so having central balance sheets, having the ability to trade carbon, to trade power, to trade uh, gas cargoes, all of that becomes a massive asset. So 
from an investor perspective, suddenly you have companies that are cash cows, to use Elena's, Elena's words, are offering yield, but are also suddenly offering uh, that growth as well. And suddenly the argument around these companies having no terminal value begins to lose some of its weight. Thanks for that, Philip. I think that's quite interesting. You talk about the energy going to become a lot more complex and, you know, and I just wondered how does that drive or what's driving sort of performance of funds in, in the energy sector and how do we differentiate between those that are generalists or specialists now? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And I, I think, you know, first of all, at a high level, we've got to distinguish between where on the spectrum of conventional energy versus energy transition different funds are. Um, frankly, there's not many long-only conventional energy funds left, at least in Europe. Um, so really, a lot of them have become hybrids or, or, or pure plays in energy transition. And, and whilst the systems are going to converge, as you get the electrification of things like transport, which means that you no longer have this separation of kind of the liquid oil uh, markets and, and power markets, at the moment, they are still quite separate. So the drivers are quite different. So What's been interesting in the conventional space and the conventional fund performance has been that really it has been driven more by the macro. It's been driven by higher oil prices, higher gas prices. But actually in that time, we've actually seen a derating of the underlying companies. And we, we essentially split these companies into kind of four buckets, which is those integrated energy companies, uh, the companies that are uh, producing gas as a kind of transition fuel, oil field service companies that are transitioning their business model towards renewables, and then finally, we kind of look at the um, exploration and production companies that are low down on the cost curve, but also low down on the carbon curve. Essentially, all of those companies have derated over, um, it, at least on a kind of EBITDA or an earnings multiple basis, as the oil and gas price has gone up. And that's because their earnings and EBITDA have been going up as well. So whilst performance has held up and relative to the wider market, actually, it's, it's been quite disappointing um, in, in one sense. and so. Really, I think that it's we're in a bit of a show me period of the market for them. And it goes back to what we were just talking about with the integrators, especially you know, the European majors, having to show that they can make decent returns from the capital that they're allocating to these renewable projects. Um, and likewise, with the oil field service companies, a lot of these, despite being dollar earners in the UK, have, have kind of fallen with the wider market. So I think there is an opportunity there. And then in terms of the drivers on energy transition, You've had certain subsectors within that that have been incredibly strong and kind of helped by the fact that there is this clear structural growth driver behind it. As the mark, you know, the, the, you know, the, the performance has still been uh, put under pressure because as we went into this year, equity duration became much more of a focus. And as the market began to factor in not just protracted inflation, but also kind of slower economic growth we saw some of those slightly more growth subsectors coming under pressure. But things like solar, um, the solar kind of value chain has been very resilient within that. But there's huge opportunity because actually things that were more value and cyclical uh, in that value chain, which held up a bit more at the beginning of the year, a lot of those have sold off dramatically. So if you take a step back away from that kind of near-term volatility, the underlying picture hasn't changed. And this goes back to what we were saying about the case for renewables has never been stronger. So whilst this has kind of come under pressure again we think the long-term opportunity is, is still very much there thanks um elena can you add to that perhaps what i mean what levers are driving the performance of these funds yes i think it's you know kind of felix touched on that so i think you know the market is very polarized in that it sort of you know splits the energy sector broadly into sort of companies sometimes they're called you know companies on the naughty step so if you're a fossil fuel producer if you are you know 
sort of BP or Shell or Chevron or whatever. You just get sort of, you know, assessment, you get assessed entirely different, you know, compared to clean energy, you know, for obvious reasons. So when you look at performance of, you know, kind of traditional oil and gas miners over time versus, you know, kind of clean energy, the wind, the solar, the, you know, hydro, it, it, these are completely, you know, different camps. I think what has been happening over the last, you know, couple of years, and, you know, I can remember having conversations with clients, you know, back 10 years ago. And, you know, when you talk about ESG, sort of that got sort of like a negative performance connotation uh, attached to it. And, you know, people sort of automatically assume that, you know, ESG, you know, would be something that would underperform over the long run. So it's almost, you know, sort of like fat-free yogurt, which doesn't give you nearly as much satisfaction as eating a full fat, you know, whatever um, portion. But, um, you know, so essentially what that meant is that, you know, the sort of capital, um, you know, people continue doing what they do. They continue sticking, you know, with what they know best. But I think you know this kind of change in technology change in ip the industry becoming much more efficient you know those you know greater concerns in the structural way around esg and the government commitment and regulation kind of propelled a lot of development in the clean energy space and so actually you know in a, and you know these these two groups of assets they're very different so if you look at the fossil fuel businesses these are you know very capital intensive you know as we've talked about poor capital allocators very you know kind of tend to perform better in periods of really strong inflation when you look at the other side of the kind of equation with clean energy these businesses tend to be you know a lot more sense the long longer duration assets very sensitive to interest rates so actually you know you could see that you know over the last 10 years oil is doing is done absolutely nothing it's been dreadful investment you know and if you are an active fund manager if you've avoided you know oil and mining you will have done really well without doing anything else but um and you know by by the same token if you've invested in clean energy you would have done you know really you know beautifully in a period of this kind of perpetually um low rates and you know falling yields and so on so you know inflation's been obviously you know quite um anemic as well over that time but ever since we've been starting to emerge from the covid pandemic i think you know that obviously tables have turned and i think you know this really persistent high inflation you know kind of hammered long duration assets you know rates have rose precipitously and i think you know we've seen sort of quite some weakness so if i look at my responsible portfolios here to date you know they, they're suffering big time and i think you know the common denominator here is you know kind of sensitivity to, to higher rates but also those companies tend to be lower down in terms of cap scales so they're sort of mid-cap type businesses and again that you know those got absolutely hammered um, they also tend to be a little bit more growth there, whilst, you know, the conventional, you know, oil, mining, gas uh, businesses, they tend to be a lot more value, you know, because they've suffered so much, you know, in terms of the kind of quality and, you know, misallocation of capital, people not interested in um, assigning, um, you know, any any value to kind of terminal assets and so on. So I think, you know, there's been quite a lot of rebalancing, but I think, you know, from here on in, you know, we, you know, at AJ Bell, we're reasonably agnostic. So actually we kind of, you know, almost look at the market and don't necessarily try and profess, we know what's, you know, the future holds but we look very closely at valuations we look at dislocations we can see on that basis and actually allocating capital almost in some contrarian manner where you know we deploy a bit more money where we think you know there are structural uh, tailwinds you know such as you know oil market for example you know it's an absolutely necessary step and link in that energy transition these companies they've got very big pockets they've got the ip and i think you know without them it's going to be very very difficult to actually structurally pivot away from you know fossil fuels so i think you know they've got a part to play but of course you know when you look at clean energy again this is you know undoubtedly one very big theme which is not going away no matter shorter term performance challenges so i think you know both really have you know place in portfolios you know i would argue but I Actually, you know, in terms of kind of the composition, if you look at the clean energy, you know, there are a couple of um, 
you know, obviously the you know, funds out there, there is a number of ETFs as well. So in terms of sector composition, there are a lot of industrial businesses, there are some technology companies. So, you know, often, you know, we have conversations with clients and they think, well, you know, so what exactly is there under the bonnet? And then, you know, you have those more kind of detailed discussions where you kind of try and alert people as to what to expect often in these companies, because sometimes it's not just, you know, Felix you know, kind of offered, you know, really good uh, outline in terms of different buckets that exist within clean energy. So, you know, there is pure play you know there is sort of picks and shovels you can get invested in and you know everything in between so it's quite a diverse area you know you need to look in more detail as to what you are holding and i think you know the area can, you know as with anything it, you know shorter term there's quite a lot of noise but if you try and look through over the long term time horizon i think you know the outlook is really you know quite quite structurally positive i think is um nuclear poised to make a comeback and, and what, what do you think of that Maybe ask Felix first and Elena. So, I mean, nuclear is an interesting one. Um, I remember being quite surprised when Boris Johnson came out with his kind of solution to energy security being nuclear, just because there was such a long lead time on these projects. And I think that when we look at the kind of levelized cost of electricity um, from nuclear versus uh, renewable sources or gas sources, it is much more expensive. There's interesting things happening in kind of new technologies, so things like modular uh, nuclear reactors. But again, that is very early stage. Personally, I completely see the need for that kind of base load, non-fossil fuel capacity. Uh, but when we look at the actual underlying technology for nuclear as it stands, there's been issues with a lot of the nuclear reactors in, in, in France. And I think that, you know, there's, a, there's very often this kind of running over of budget. So I, I don't see nuclear as being the kind of silver bullet to solving all of this. I think that actually the case uh, and the economics for solar and wind and offshore wind, which actually acts as more of a kind of baseload power, given how big the turbines are, that to me makes a lot more sense. Or even looking at kind of wind and solar plus storage, um, you know, we have a lot of different kinds of storage technologies that, that are coming through now and are economic. And I think that you're taking lower risk because there's less upfront capex and actually, I think that ultimately they could offer better solutions than than the nuclear option. Thank you, Felix. Do you agree with that, Malena? Yeah, so I think, you know, in some ways, I think, you know, that you kind of need various different components to get there, because I think, you know, there is a, obviously a glaring gap in terms of how much energy is required, you know, if, you know, we, we see persistent shortages from, you know, supply from, you know, Russia and some other sources, which are quite challenging. Um, and, you know, I think nuclear has this, negative um, connotation around security and maintenance and you know the cost involved it's you know really high-tech operation but i think you know kind of over time you know if you focus your attention on perhaps building those reactors which which are not kind of one of a kind so you know historically all, all of the reactors seem to be quite you know kind of sort of almost projects in its own and it's really difficult to get people to maintain stuff you know when you know it's just so many different brands it's just that there's no uniformity the market is very fragmented but I think if you approached it in a way where you almost sort of, you know, systematize and just, you know, kind of make it almost like a franchise of reactors, you know, where it's the same thing, you know, looks and feels the same, needs the exact same componentry, you know, the maintenance cycle is very similar between maintaining one, you know, the, the, the other, all of these reactors in a group and perhaps, you know, getting sort of almost like, you know, leaders 
in the industry who could be, you know, almost at the forefront of, you know, building those out, maintaining them and, you know, become like a sort of like a golden standard within that particular industry. I can see how this, you know, can be made a lot more scalable. It can be a lot safer. And also, you know, ultimately, the, you know, somebody who owns, you know, sort of the safety element of it, you know, but, but there's, there's a lot of ifs and buts. And I think, you know, it sounds like a long term project. Uh, but you know, ultimately, as an energy mix, I think you know the broader you can get it, sort of like the more diversity within that. And you know, so, so you know, if something falls out of bed tomorrow, you're not particularly dependent on one element or the other. So it's you know, kind of really about hedging your bets, but also you know, thinking what is the most efficient to produce, you know, within which time frame, and managing all of those you know, not very easy um, targets kind of holistically. I was going to ask um, Elaine, I mean, the energy crisis appears to be triggering an investment rethink. I mean, we we did a a survey recently asking advisors how much um, the energy crisis sort of forms part of the conversations they have with their clients now, you know, who are thinking about, you know, cleaner energy or transition into cleaner energy or energy independence. I mean, how much do you think the investors will drive change? I think you know, it's it's an excellent question. So I think it kind of you know goes back to you know this conversation that I've had with clients you know back ten years ago, and you know as I've alluded to, like no one would want to listen because you know people ultimately look at performance, you know sort of their level of understanding is very limited. So you're underperforming plus they don't really understand you know what is being discussed. It it makes for quite a difficult conversation altogether. But I think you know performance obviously has seen quite some boost. You know efficiencies are there. You know the capital is structurally backing the area. You know the, the structural backdrop is very positive, and I think at the same time there's been you know a huge amount of education. You know company you know such as Schroders obviously you know banging the drum and a lot of you know a lot more other investment managers, fund managers you know constantly you know trying to update themselves because you know one thing. You know, some people, you know, they might still be living under a rock and trying to ignore the ESG. But I think, you know, you really have to try harder than that. You really have to try, you know, and educate and understand because ultimately, you know, there are some big changes unraveling in front of our eyes. And, you know, you just you know cannot afford to not pay attention to that. So I think, you know, clients increasingly, as they gain better understanding in terms of education, as they get to understand what exactly it means, because, you know, ESG, again, is such a challenge. You know, it means different things to different people. And, you know, it's about, I guess, your definition. It's about, you know, Felix's definition. It's about my definition. And we all might say ESG, but actually we mean something very, very different. So, you know, there is no wrong or right answer. And it's about, you know, what's right for you. And, you know, as ever, as an advisor, you know, we've got people constantly kind of discussing with clients, you know, what is acceptable to them? Do they need certain ex- you know, exemptions? You know, do they want a more integrated approach, you know, which essentially, you know, um, requires a different a set of holdings in portfolios from time to time. But you know, as, as a provider, AJ Bell is reasonably agnostic. So we, you know, sort of try and provide a number of products and suite of different, um, you know, kind of access points to clients so that they can choose the product that is right for them. But, you know, one thing which is definitely not denying is I think, you know, people certainly have come from thinking and talking about these things a lot more. And I think oftentimes they want to make a difference and, you know, they want to bag that conviction with their capsule as well. I think if we were being cynical as well um, for for a minute, and and I think this goes to your point, Elena, there's not been any, when we look at the kind of fiduciary duty argument, there hasn't been any counter to not holding these things for a long time. I think when you're in an upward trending market, the need for that diversification becomes less and less. Um, what we've seen in the past year or so is that, you know, this does offer proper diversification. And so I think that people are now being more nuanced in how they're viewing ESG around things like 
the integrated energy companies and the kind of conventional space, partly because suddenly there's a counter argument from a fiduciary perspective, because actually being just fully divested and essentially treating this as if I'm not touching it, then it's it's not my problem. Um, that has become a harder argument because it's actually been costing funds in performance. And I think ultimately this does need to become more nuanced. And, and to Elena's point, because there's different definitions of ESG out there, the, the thing for us is transparency. You've got to be so clear about what you mean. Uh, and ultimately, I, you know, I, I think that engagement is crucial here because ultimately these are still companies that have expertise, that have capital, uh, and, and they're actually directly responsible for emissions as well. So if they can transition, lower their own emissions, uh, and, and, and also kind of provide the technology that we need to solve some of the massive societal problems we have, then that means they can have a place in in um, in people's portfolios, but they do have to prove that. And I think that not all companies have woken up to that. And that again is why you've got to be very specific in picking and choosing. In some ways, the strategies, even just looking at the integrated uh, big majors in, in 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 energy, have never been more differentiated. So suddenly, they're, they're going to be less correlated, or they should be, because. The strategies are much more uh, are, are, are vastly different than when they were all just having a, a slightly different mix of oil or gas or a slightly different ratio of upstream and downstream. And also, I think you know what I would add to that. You know, really important point there is you know kind of diversification element. And I think you know the second one, which kind of stands out for me, is you know sometimes exclusionary practice can be right for some clients, but you know in some cases people argue devil's advocates. You know, so if I simply sell. That makes me in some ways, or you know, at least the argument goes, a bit of an irresponsible allocator of capital because I then sort of pretend that I no longer own this asset. And therefore I just, you know, kind of really don't, you know, mind the you know, or care as to what's you know gonna happen to those assets. But oftentimes, you know, people who are purchasing those assets of you are those who will run those assets even worse. And actually, in terms of being able to operate them better, that isn't going to happen. And I think it's not really helping in that, you know, very kind of <laughs> aim that we're all, I think, agreeing on and trying to achieve and transitioning the world to a better place. So I think, you know, you really need to engage, as Felix says, you know, like, you know, doing slowly by slowly, small change, but over a consistent, you know, time frame, long term time horizon, small changes can make really, really huge difference. So I think, you know, that kind of engagement and integration, I think, will eventually trump exclusions and divestments, in my opinion, or at least, you know, that's the way that I think the industry has been moving over the last um, couple of years. Yeah, I completely agree. Thank you so much, Elena. Thank you so much, Felix. I think we've actually run out of time there and that was been a really interesting conversation. Um, before we go, um, do either of you have any final, any last words you want to add at all with regards to, you know, the energy crisis and where we're headed? I think my kind of concluding remarks would be that, sadly, I expect this volatility to continue, but actually there are opportunities in this um, and that we are already seeing markets react to this but it, it does take time. And so I think anyone saying that there's this kind of very easy solution hasn't understood the complexity or the, or the scale of the problem. Mm, and I think, you know, you, you look, I mean, I'm sort of a bit of an optimist, you know, generally speaking, but, you know, you look at the numbers of the International Energy Agency and, you know, we've come a long way. So, you know, when you look at UK, you know, energy exposure and, you know, access to energy via sustainable sources, it's increased tenfold over the last 20 years. So I think, you know, the pace of change isn't going to slow. And I think, you are, you know, perhaps maybe not seeing as, as, as big a progress elsewhere around the world, but, you know, the numbers are really quite staggering. So I think huge amount of progress achieved 
achieved so far. There's certainly a lot going for continuing to deliver progress. And I think, you know, there is really, you know, this, you know, kind of, I suppose, alignment, you know, now between the investment community, the governments, you know, the businesses in wanting to transition and do something a little bit more sustainably, you know, do something a little bit more cleanly if it's possible to achieve. And then, you know, over time, I think we can, you know, together get there. But, um, you know, as ever, you know, being an investor, you have to be very mindful of the type of exposures, you know, in terms of underlying holdings within those portfolios. So, you know, as ever, whenever you're investing in thematics or, you know, particular areas of the market, you need to, you know, be really clear as to what exactly you hold you know what sensitivities are there you know be it inflation interest rates you know what other major factors you're potentially susceptible to because an investment tends to be quite volatile over the long shorter term you know the markets go down but on balance they tend to go up over the long run so you kind of need to you know perhaps be a little bit more patient during periods of volatility use it as an opportunity and then focus in the long run thank you so much um felix thank you so much elena um we'll finish up there for today and thank you for listening. Please tune in next week to hear the latest from the industry. For more news, visit ftadvisor.com. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.